0: Friends, are we not blessed with some talented worship leaders here? Thank you. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Well, it's great to see you guys. Uh, I missed you this past week. Uh, Last Sunday, Thank you to Pastor Stephen for covering for me and doing such a great job continuing our study in Philippians. Uh, I was out in Washington, D.C. last weekend uh, at a church uh, right outside the Capitol uh, speaking for an apologetics conference there. I was speaking uh, Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. I uh, had a great time, church of about a 1,000 people, just uh, super excited for the the teaching and the equipping that I was able to share with them. So uh, I just want to thank you as a church for giving me the, the freedom to go and uh, do some of that ministry outside of our church. Uh, it was a, it was a great time, a real blessed time. Uh, just to assure you that I was there, uh, ministering. Uh, you guys sent some spies to check on me. Uh, Jeff and Jeannie Soderlund actually came, uh, and they, uh, visited, uh, our service on Sunday morning, but, uh, it was fun to see them. They were out there visiting their son, Justin, who is, uh, serving in the armed forces there in Virginia. So a uh, really special treat to, uh, see some, uh, friendly faces from home. But, uh, it was a great time. And, uh, One of the highlights for me that weekend was uh, being able to bring my son Caleb with me. We had some free time during our time there, uh, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon in particular, and uh, the pastor and his wife of the church where we were uh, ministering uh, took us on a crash course tour of Washington, D.C. I mean, we we went all over in the span of about four or five hours on Saturday afternoon, saw all the, the great monuments, the Capitol building, we saw the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington monument, we saw where uh, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech where my son standing there. Uh, We saw the World War II Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial. I mean, just some really powerful, uh, moving experiences seeing these places that uh, are so meaningful in our nation's history. And, And it was really interesting to me as I was walking around these various memorials and monuments, One thing that became clear to me very quickly as we would read the information and and remind ourselves of the meaning behind these various memorials is that each of these memorials were were dedicated to an individual who made a great sacrifice on behalf of others. You know, you think about uh, famous heroes in our nation's history like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. These were men who really laid it all on the line. For the sake of our nation and for the sake of our freedoms and our liberties. And uh, it was really moving just to, to be there and, and think about all that, that these monuments and memorials stand for. One of the, the most meaningful places that my son Caleb and I had the opportunity to visit was uh, Manassas National Battlefield. Uh it's uh it was actually like right across the street from the hotel we were staying at and uh Manassas was the first and one of the largest battles of the Civil War. It was actually uh two battles that took place there at the fields of Manassas. Um there was uh the first major battle of the Civil War happened there and then uh, a year later there was a second battle of Manassas. You might be more familiar with the the more popular name of these battles were the battles of Bull Run, Bull Run 1 and Bull Run 2. Well, they were major pivotal moments in the Civil War. One of the, one of the things that I learned as we walked the fields there at Manassas was a, an episode that I had never been familiar with before, uh, a powerful story of sacrifice that literally changed the, the entire course of the Civil War. In, in the Second Battle of Manassas, about a year and a half after the Civil War had started, uh, the Union and Confederate armies were battling over this pivotal area there. The Manassas area was really the crossroads of the north and the south. And uh, uh, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, the two Confederate generals, had set a trap for the Union army, and they had surrounded the Union army on this hill which is called Chin Ridge. 30,000 Confederate troops had had surrounded the Union army and the Union army was f- literally facing annihilation. It could have turned the whole tide of the war. They were less than they were less than 30 minutes from Washington DC, the capital of the Union. And uh, and the Confederates had the Union army surrounded. General Pope of the the Union army, he ordered a brigade of uh, a few hundred soldiers from Ohio to Chin Ridge where they were to form a rear guard, a rear defense to hold off the 30,000 approaching Confederate troops for as long as possible in order that the Union Army could make their escape back to Washington, D.C. and their supporting troops there. Well, this brigade of a few hundred men from Ohio stood boldly in the face of an onslaught of 30,000 Confederate troops. And for over 30 minutes with only two cannons and every weapon that they had at their disposal. They fought bravely, literally buying time in their blood for the sake of their Union brothers to be able to flee and escape this, this oncoming uh, onslaught that the Confederates had uh, had laid this trap. and uh, And they fought for 30 minutes there on Shin Ridge, literally laying down their lives for the sake of the their brothers in the Army, for the sake of the Union. Friends, the entire course of American history could have changed were it not for these brave Ohioan men who laid down their lives on Chin Ridge so that the Union Army could escape and live to fight another day. You know, there's a really powerful example, This, this 30 minutes that they bought with their blood, allowing the rest of the Army to escape. And, you know, as I thought about that powerful example, you know, I, I think about so many times throughout history where a lone man, a lone woman, or a or a small band of brothers standing boldly in the face of opposition, willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of others, uh, how stories like that just really grip our hearts and, and inspire us to want to live in that same way, inspire us to greater courage, to greater acts of service and sacrifice. And today, as we continue our journey through the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is likewise going to seek to inspire us with a powerful model of sacrifice. And it's not just any model, but it's the most powerful demonstration of self-sacrificial love this world has ever seen. It's not a story of time bought with blood, but of hearts and lives and eternal destinies, Bought with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Stephen turned the corner for us in the book of Philippians. If you recall what we've been studying in previous weeks, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. And his friends in Philippi are concerned about him, and so they sent a messenger to Paul to to provide him some relief, to provide him with some encouragement. And Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians in order to respond to their gifts and their acts of love and encouragement on his behalf. And and in the opening uh, few passages in the book of Philippians, we saw where Paul was seeking to encourage them. He was reminding them that what God had allowed to happen to him had really served to advance the gospel. He wanted them to be encouraged that the gospel was winning. And in spite of the opposition that he was encountering. And then last week, Paul turned the corner to begin admonishing and encouraging the Philippians and how they too should go out living their faith. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul said to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor Stephen showed us how Paul then unfolded what that meant, how he wanted his church in Philippi to live united together in, in a common mission, living together in humility and sacrifice and love and service of one another. This is what it would look like for them to live worthy of the gospel, to be a people united in love and humility and in sacrifice. And now today, Paul is going to point us As he continues on his letter in the Philippians, he's going to point us to the ultimate example of that kind of humility, the ultimate example of self-sacrificial love. And that example is Jesus Christ. Paul's hope for us today as we continue on in the letter to the Philippians is that as we look to Jesus Christ, we too will be increasingly conformed to his likeness. That we too might be a people characterized by Christ-like humility, by, by Christ-like love and service and sacrifice for others, to the glory of God. So Paul's going to hold up the model of Jesus, and he's going to say to us, "Look to Christ. look to Christ." This morning we're in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. I'm going to read our passage for us, and then I want to come back, and I want to highlight three ways in which Paul calls us to look to Christ, our ultimate model of this self-sacrificial love, humility, and service. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul says to the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here Paul holds up this beautiful image of Jesus Christ. Paul says to his church, he says to you and I and to Christians around the world, he says, look to Christ. Look to Christ. You want to be people of selfless love and sacrifice and service and humility. Look to Christ. Christ is our model. Paul starts out in our passage. He says, look to Christ. Why? Because number one, he highlights for us that Jesus is our glorious God. Jesus is our glorious God. Paul opens our passage this morning with an exhortation to the church to embrace the mind of Jesus. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul wants them to embrace the mind of Christ. What that word mind there means is the same attitude or the same outlook as Jesus. We are to embrace the the attitude or mindset that Christ had. And what is so significant about the attitude or the mindset of Jesus Christ? Well, friends, Paul tells us in verse 6. Paul says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why embrace the mind of Christ? Why look to the attitude of Christ and follow him as our example? Because Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held tightly to, something to be grasped onto. Now, when Paul here talks about Jesus being in the form of God, understand, friends, Paul is not saying that Jesus merely appeared as God. Or he was like God. That's not what Paul means when he says he was in the form of God. The word form in the Greek is the word morphe. And the word morphe in the Greek means the essential attributes or nature of a thing. And so when Paul says that Jesus was in the very form of God, what he's saying there is that Jesus shared the very essential attributes and nature of God. In other words, Jesus was fully and truly God, our glorious God. There was no similarity to God. There was no likeness or appearance to God. Jesus was God, Paul says. He held the essential attributes and nature of God. Now, friends, throughout the history of the church, there have been all kinds of debates, even to our present day, about the the nature of Jesus Christ. There have been many heresies that have sprung up over the the centuries about the nature of Jesus Christ. How are we to understand this reality that that Jesus Christ was fully God and yet we also profess that that he was fully man? That's a a difficult thing to understand. And as people have tried to make sense of that reality, many different heresies and debates have stemmed and grown up in the church. One of the fiercest of these debates came at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., A priest by the name of uh, Arius from Alexandria in Egypt. Arius believed that Jesus wasn't fully God. Arius argued that, that Jesus was just the first and greatest creation of God. This is a very similar uh, view to our modern-day heresy held by the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that that Jesus was the first creation of God. He was the the Archangel Michael, the first and greatest creation of God. This is essentially the same uh, heresy that Arius affirmed. Jesus was just a created being. Fortunately, though, there was another priest from Alexandria, a man by the name of Athanasius, who countered Arius. He opposed Arius. Athanasius defended the position that Jesus was fully God, that Jesus was of the same essence as the Father. And Athanasius, fortunately for us, would ultimately win the day, proving from Scripture that Jesus was fully God. Now, friends, all, here, all of these heresies like this ultimately stem from a, a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. Why were heresies like Arian, Arianism ultimately refuted? Well, they were refuted and rejected because they didn't match up with the apostolic teaching of Scripture. They, they didn't fit what the Bible reveals to us about Jesus Christ. For example, the Gospel of John. John the Apostle in John chapter 1. John says this about Jesus, using the term word for Jesus Christ. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the ap- the apostolic testimony about Jesus Christ is not simply that he appeared as God or was like God, but that Jesus was fully and completely God from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus shared the essential attributes and nature of God. Now, this is a very interesting story here, the background to why John used the term the Word in regards to Jesus Christ. See, John was writing to a predominantly Greek audience. And friends, for centuries, the Greek philosophers had taught the concept of the Word, or the Logos in the Greek. That's the word, that's the the term for the word in the Greek, the Logos. The Greek philosophers taught that there was a life-empowering force at work in the universe called the Logos, and that the Logos created all things, and that the Logos is what held all things together and gave life to all things. And so John, when he equates Jesus with this Logos, what John is saying is, look, at your philosophers have talked about the Logos. The, the word that made all things and that holds all things together. But you see, the Greek philosophers never knew who the Logos was. They never sought to define the, the Logos or, or proclaim how we might have a relationship with the Logos. They just knew that there was this life-empowering principle, this force. John comes along and says, you want to know the Logos? Let me tell you about the Logos. The Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And guess what? The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us so that we could know who he was. He was Jesus. Friends, John was very specific in using that term, the word, the Logos, in regards to Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he testifies to the nature of Jesus Christ like this. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3, please, if you if you could go. Jesus, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, the author of Hebrews here doesn't say that Jesus reflects. The glory of God. He's not a reflector. He is the exact, he is the actual radiance of the glory of God. Again, all throughout Scripture, we have this affirmation that Jesus was fully God. Now, friends, notice how Paul transitions from this point at the end of verse 6. He says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, even though he was fully God, Jesus wasn't going to hang on to that divine position. Jesus was fully God, equal with God in every way. But instead of viewing his divine position as a means of personal gain, Jesus chose to show us what it means to live and give for the sake of others. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Tokyo, Japan with my father. We were speaking at Tokyo Baptist Church, the largest evangelical church in Japan. The, the pastor there at Tokyo Baptist Church had recently, uh, started a relationship, gotten, gotten into a friendship with the, the head imam of the Tokyo mosque there in Japan. Uh, he was a Pakistani gentleman and he was in charge of the whole Muslim community in Tokyo, Japan. Well, this pastor took us one day to, to meet with this head imam of all the Muslims in Japan and, and we sat down across from this Muslim imam and we began to talk about uh, our, our various uh, beliefs and our two faiths. And one of the main differentiating points between Islam and Christianity is on the person and nature of Jesus Christ. You see, Muslims teach and believe that Jesus wasn't God. He wasn't the son of God. Jesus was simply a prophet of God. Now, obviously, that's a very different view than what we as Christians hold, right? That Jesus was a prophet of God versus, no, Jesus was God, fully God, God who became a man. Well, as we started talking about our, our belief in Jesus and how God humbled himself and took on flesh, becoming a man so that we could know him, this Muslim imam got all upset. He said, no, 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 no. God would never stoop so low to become a man. God is great. Friends, have you ever heard the, the Muslim cry, Allahu Akbar? What, what does that mean? When the Muslim cries Allahu Akbar, they're saying, God is great. The greatness of Allah is the chief attribute of God in Islam. God is so great, so transcendent, so supreme, that he would never stoop to the level of humanity. My dad said to this Muslim imam, Yes, sir, but there are two kinds of greatness, you see. You see, there's the kind of greatness where we, where we look to a king who lives up on his high hill in a large castle and he's so far removed from his people and we look to that king and we say that he is great. But you see, there's another kind of greatness. There's the greatness of the, the wealthy Western medical doctor who leaves his lucrative practice in America and, and moves to India to the slums to care for the poor and the diseased and the destitute and we say of that man he is great and we shared with the muslim imam that's what the bible talks about when it refers to jesus christ god in flesh truly was great and his greatness is found in the fact that he did not count equality with god something to be held tightly to to be grasped but he humbled himself so that we could know him friends this is why Paul calls us to look to Christ. And friends, just imagine how differently our lives would look if we followed Christ's example, if we didn't count our rights and privileges as something to be held tightly to, but we're willing to humble ourselves for the sake of our husband, for our wife, kids, for your parents, for your friends, for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, Looking to Christ and his example of humility literally changes everything. Paul goes on in our passage and secondly points out to us, He calls us to look to Christ. Why? Because Jesus is our humble helper. Reverend Harry Ironside, who was the famous pastor of Moody Church in Chicago in the first half of the 20th century. Reverend Ironside used to talk about how he, he struggled with humility. That was one of his personal battles, humility. And one day one of his elder friends came to, to Reverend Ironside and said, Reverend Ironside, you know, if, if you struggle with humility, why don't, why don't you take this challenge? I want you to go down to downtown Chicago and I want you to take a sandwich board and I want you to put a sandwich board over your body, strap it to your body and walk around with a sandwich board saying, trust in Jesus and walk through the heart of downtown Chicago, the business district, all day long proclaiming, Trust in Jesus. So Reverend Ironside decided to take that challenge. He strapped on a sandwich board. It said, trust in Jesus. And he walked through the crowds all day in Chicago. And he was humiliated. After walking through and being ignored and laughed at by people all day long, the end of the day came. And as Dr. Ironside was taking the sandwich board off, he caught himself thinking, wow, I bet there's not another man in all of Chicago he'd be willing to do that. You know, friends, humility, <laughs> humility is one of those virtues that is very, very hard for us to cultivate. And this again is why Paul calls us to look to Christ, our humble helper, the ultimate model of humility and service. Look what Paul says again about Christ in verses seven through eight. But he, Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, friends, this term where Paul says Jesus emptied himself has tripped up a lot of people over the centuries. In fact, many heresies have arisen over this idea that Jesus emptied himself. What does that mean? Did, did Jesus cease to be God? Did he, did he remove his divine attributes and nature and take on the form of man? Was he, was he no longer fully and truly God? And, and many heresies have, have arisen trying to explain what it means that Jesus emptied himself. The, the term emptied here in the Greek is kino. We, we get the term kenosis, which means the, the emptying of Christ. It means to be emptied or abased. But understand here, friends, Paul is not saying that Jesus literally emptied himself of his divinity. What he's saying here is he's using this term figuratively. The key to understanding the word emptied here is found in the two phrases immediately following. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, how so? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we understand the negative action of emptying by defining it in light of Christ's positive actions in what he took on. In other words, friends, when Jesus became a man, Jesus was no less divine. He simply added humanity to his deity. And in doing this, he voluntarily set aside some of his rights and privileges as God. In other words, he chose not to exercise various aspects of his divine power while he was in the form of a man. Dr. A.W. Tozer, in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, he describes this emptying of Jesus like this. He says, in his incarnation, the son veiled his deity, but he did not void it. When he took upon him the nature of man, he did not degrade himself or become even for a time less than he had been before. God can never become less than himself. So, friends, please understand here, Jesus did not exchange his deity for humanity. He was always fully God. But in his incarnation, he added to himself a divine nature. And in doing this, Jesus yielded the free exercise of some of his divine rights as God. Humbling Himself, taking the form of a man, experiencing all of our limitations as humans—hunger, weariness, pain, temptation—Jesus was fully human, and yet He remained fully and truly God. Pastor Brian Chapel shares the story of a of a missionary friend of his who reported a, a, an episode that really helps to explain what took place when Jesus humbled himself taking the form of a man chapel shares the story that was reported to him by a missionary of a, a village in africa where the chief of the village is the strongest man in the village so the strongest most powerful man is the chief and and so he wears the the chief's headdress he wears the chief's uh rich wealthy robes and that's the sign. He is the strongest of all the men. Well, in this village one day, there was another young man who, who fell into the village well, 30 feet down, and broke his leg. And, and he couldn't climb up. And there was no one else in the village strong enough to climb into the well and, and pick this man up and bring him up to safety. And, and so the people of the village, they called the chief. The strong man and the chief came and he saw the man struggling at the base of the well and the chief laid aside his chief's headdress. The chief laid aside his wealthy robes and he crawled down into that well and he lifted the man onto his back and straining against the weight of this man he was carrying pulled himself up to the top Rescuing this man saving this man friends. This is what Jesus has done for us And what is probably the most remarkable aspect of Jesus's humility He willingly stepped out of eternal glory to take the form of a servant Jesus traded majesty for poverty He laid aside his divine privileges And like that chief who laid aside his headdress, he was no less chief in doing that. So too, Jesus was no less God in laying aside his divine rights and privileges to take the form of a servant. Jesus did this, stepping into our desperation in order to rescue us from our sin. Jesus says in Mark 10.45, the reason for why he came into this world, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is why Paul calls us to look to Christ, the ultimate model of humility and service. Paul reminds us here in verse 8 that Jesus did exactly this. He humbled himself. And was obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 explains why Jesus went to the cross. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. Friends, Why did Jesus humble himself? Jesus humbled himself becoming a man so that he might be our perfect substitute. Jesus came fully God so that he might be our perfect sacrifice. He was the only one, fully God, fully man, who would thereby be the appropriate sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus went to the cross and took our sins upon himself as our perfect substitute, the perfect representative of humanity. And yet without sin, he was therefore the perfect sacrifice. And friends, when he died on that cross, shedding his blood, when we put our faith and trust in him and in his sacrifice, we too can know with certainty that Jesus, in his substitutionary atonement, his substitutionary payment for our sins, has reconciled us with our creator, God. What a model for us today, friends. Paul's pointing us here to the ultimate model of humility. No one in all of history has ever served so selflessly or sacrificed so greatly as Jesus Christ. And he did this for us. Friends, what would that kind of selfless love look like in your life? Do you believe it's even possible? Paul says it is if you'll look to Christ. Look to Christ and follow his model. Let his model be your guide. Paul then says thirdly in our passage, look to Christ. Why? Because he is our exalted excellency. Verses 9 through 11, Paul says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says because of Jesus' humble sacrifice, God the Father highly exalted him. This word is great in the Greek. The word is huperupso. It means to be raised to the loftiest height, to be honored exceptionally. In our modern language, we might say God mega-exalted Jesus to the highest place. Friends, please understand here, when Paul reveals this exaltation of Jesus, we have the ultimate illustration of what Jesus teaches and promises in Matthew twenty-three, eleven and 12. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, do you want to be great? Do you want to be exalted? Then look to Jesus. Follow his motto. Humble yourself, and your name will be great in the eyes of God. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Not only does God highly exalt Jesus, but Paul goes on to tell us that he's given him the name that is above every name. And what name is that? Look again at verse 11. Paul says, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord. God gave Jesus the title, the name of Lord. Friends, what's so significant about the name, the Lord? Well, friends, throughout the Old Testament, God says that that is his name. The name, the Lord, is the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh God. That is his title. Isaiah 42, verse 8, for example, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. God says, I am the Lord. I don't share my glory with anyone. And yet when the Son humbled himself, taking the form of a man, the nature of a servant, going to the cross, God the Father exalted the Son to the loftiest of heights, Hooperup, Omega so mega exalted the Son and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name that God shares with no other. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord fully God, the God who humbled himself for you and for I so that we could have a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Friends, this is the God we worship. As a result of Jesus' lordship, Paul says in verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Friends, there is not a knee in all the cosmos that's excluded there. Every knee in all of history, every knee today, every knee that will ever come will bow before Jesus as Lord. And not only that, every tongue, Paul says, will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. The name above every name. Friends, let me ask you, are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for that day when you will bow before Jesus as Lord? See, you're going to bow before Jesus, And you're either going to bow before Jesus as a saved and secure child of God, bowing in gratitude and worship, or you're going to bow before Jesus as a rebel whose heart is hardened but who cannot fail to recognize that Jesus is sovereign and he is king. So the question is, on what terms are you going to bow before Jesus? See, Jesus came to the cross and he died for our sins so that when we put our trust in him, we might be saved. We might be washed and cleansed and forgiven of our sins so that we can know the security of living in a right relationship with God, so that we might be called children of God, so that we might bow before our Lord in worship and praise instead of rebellion facing ultimate judgment. Friends, Paul in our passage here has given us a powerful vision of Jesus Christ. Are you looking to Jesus today? Is your gaze fixed on Jesus? You see, what we look to in our lives will ultimately shape the people we become. What are you looking to today? Are you looking to our pop culture icons as your model of what life is, what success is? Are you looking to famous wealthy businessmen or entrepreneurs? Are you looking to politicians? Friends, Paul says, look to Jesus. He's the greatest model of all. And so, as Paul encouraged the Philippians, I encourage you this morning, have this mind among yourselves. Share the mindset of Christ. And look to Christ. Friends, look to Christ. Look to Christ. And let his model guide you as we live lives of unity and selflessness and sacrifice to the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this powerful vision that you've given us of Jesus Christ, our great and glorious God, our humble helper, our exalted excellency. We thank you, Jesus, that your name is the name above all names. You are the Lord. You are the king of the universe. You are the God who made a way for us to be saved and reconciled into a right relationship with you. And so, Jesus, we praise your name this morning. God, help us look to you. Help us look to Christ in your model, in your example, in your humility, in your sacrifice, and let your example guide us as we live lives of self-sacrifice and humility towards others as well. God, help us live like Christ in our relationships. Help us live like Christ self-sacrificially in our families, with our wives, with our children. Help us live with selfless humility and sacrifice towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, to others in our lives who are in need. God, let us not hold on to our rights and privileges, but like Christ, may we be willing to humble ourselves in order to love and serve others. God, help us look to Christ. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Christ. God, help us set our gaze on Christ and in doing so, Lord, transform us more and more into his likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if any of you would like prayer this morning, some of our elders will be here at the front of the sanctuary. We'd be glad to pray for you. Elders, Stephen, ministers, come up front. Let us pray for you. I want to invite you to stand with me now, and I want to leave you with these words from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And now, friends, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, everybody.